welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for calling us in community. You save us individually, Lord, but you call us to be a people. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the fellowship that exists here. Thank you for the the beauty, the light of your word. And we pray today, Lord, this morning, that somehow the Lord Jesus would be exalted in our eyes, that uh, we would grow to love him more dearly and appreciate his great love for us so as to be motivated to love you in return. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you again, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly before the the Israelites began their conquest of Canaan, the Lord called them together for one swan song address, as it were. The whole book of Deuteronomy is actually a, a, a list of speeches by Moses in the last month of his life. And he called them all together, and he essentially implored through Moses to them uh, for one very all-important uh, address, and that's found in Deuteronomy 6. But he, he told them, listen, if you guys are going to conquer the land, because they were encamped on the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River, if you're going to conquer the land successfully, if you're going to succeed and prosper in the land as my people, then you need to be about this one thing. And the one thing he said through Moses was the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 7, 6, 4, and 5. And it was this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The conquest of Canaan and their success as a people depended on them doing one thing. What was that? Loving God. Some 14 centuries later, a scribe came up to Jesus, who he was listening to him teach, and he approached Jesus and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, give me the Bible in one principle. Reduce the Bible down to one truth. Give me, as it were, a pretty audacious kind of statement, but he said, give me a life priority list of one. And Jesus said this, the foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So the testimony of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the testimony of both Moses and Jesus, the spearhead on the shaft of of Scripture the, the cornerstone of biblical theology tells us this, that the greatest thing that you and I can dedicate ourselves to is to love God, to love him first, to love him most. And this is a command. Okay, it's, it's a non-negotiable command. So if someone asks you today, why should you love God? You can tell them, well, because that's an absolute command. And somebody might say, well, that seems a bit harsh. Why would God demand that? I think of it this way. How great is it that the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, desires one thing from his people, their love. 
He wants you to love him. So it's a command. You can tell people, I have to love God because he told me so. But let me give you another equally valid and compelling reason for loving God. And that is this. It is simply because it's an inevitable response to his great love for us. I'm convinced, guys, that when we stop to consider the love with which God has loved us, we can't help but love him in return. It's just a a response, a knee-jerk response, if you will. The question that remains then is with what kind of love has God loved us? And the answer to that is a very broad stroke answer in 1 John 4.10. We love God because he first loved us through Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's love is expressed most perfectly, most beautifully, in the person and work of Jesus Christ and him being our substitute on the cross and dying in our place and giving us his life. And what I want to do this morning is just peel that back just a little bit and and not study but just ponder a couple of principles that show us what this redemptive love, this remarkable redemptive love looks like. And, and I'll tell you guys, I had eight points to give you. Okay? Don't worry. We're not going to do that. But I'm going to give you two. And if you want to hear the rest, uh, our ministry is getting ready to do start a, a, a podcast series or ministry. Uh, we're gonna do, it's going to be both video and audio. And it'll start in about two, three weeks. Right now we're trying to get the computers that we need uh, we need more processing power, they tell me. I don't know what that means. It's like we need a bigger warp core, like the Spaceship Enterprise or something. But they tell me we need greater processor uh, so that we can edit the, um, the um, podcast. You can tell I'm a technical person, right? <laughs> I just talk. I don't record it. I don't edit it. So our ministry will get that going soon. So if you want to, this is going to be our maiden voyage. We're going to cover all seven, eight points. But I want to give you two points this morning that give us a a, a greater glimpse into the amazing redemptive love of God for us. And the first point is this. Redemptive love was a costly, obedient love. That is, it was born out of Christ's costly obedience. And I think we see that beautifully in the text that Scott read for us this morning of uh, John 18, 1 through 11 especially. Guys, Jesus Christ knew exactly what awaited him when he surrendered himself to his torturers, to his arresters, to his tormentors. He knew exactly what awaited him, and still, in verse 4, it says that Jesus went forth. And that's a pretty big deal. I think it's hard for us to appreciate the suffering that Christ encountered on the cross. Right? And that's why when you hear teachers and preachers talk about this, you'll often hear them going into great lengths, and I think rightly so, to describe the physical tortures of the cross. And I think we do that in part because, humanly speaking, we can relate, at least in part, to physical pain. Uh, None of us has suffered the same extent of Christ's injuries or 
or suffered like he did on the cross, but we understand what it is to have pain. And we, after all, he was fully man as well as fully God, and we share the same nervous system, the same uh, sensory organs that he did. And so we can identify to a degree with Jesus' human pain. And so you will hear a lot of descriptions of the whipping that he received with the cat of nine tails, a multi-pronged leather whip with little pieces of bone and shards of, of rock and metal at the very tips so that when it was applied to the victim, it would just absolutely, like for example, on Christ's back, it was just flayed open. You'll hear about the thorn of crowns that was pressed on his head. You'll, you'll hear about the slow and suffocating death on the cross and the nails through the, the ankles, the, the feet and the wrist. I don't know if you can imagine the pain of that horrible situation and it's a very slow and agonizing death on the cross that that wooden beam that is nailed with a victim is dropped into that sump hole and it comes crashing down tearing on the wounds and then before long the victim runs out of breath so he has to literally pull himself up and push himself up on the axis wounds of the wrists and hands just to get a breath and that's up and down the rough hewn crossbeam of, of the cross. And then you, you drop back down. Gravity pulls you down, right? And what happens is you, you can't breathe that much when you're down in that position. And so carbon dioxide begins to build up in the bloodstream. And that results in just rending cramps in the muscles, especially the arms and legs. So that forces the victim, again, to pull himself, herself, push himself, herself up. And you get one more breath, and you go back down. And that's repeated over and over and over and over for hours on end until because of the, the, the fluid that builds up in the pericardium, the, the lungs are displaced. There's no room for lungs, and the heart is crushed. And the victim usually dies of asphyxiation or of a heart attack. Horrible. And those aspects of the cross were absolutely true. And it's legitimate and, and profitable to look at that and consider that and account that and think about that. But what is often left out of the discussion when we talk about the crucifixion is the fact that the physical tortures of the cross, as awful as they were, as real as they were, were not the main agony of the cross. The greatest agony of the cross was by far, guys, the bearing of my sin and your sin on Jesus' unpolluted body, his divine being. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to have to do just a 15-minute podcast on, on this verse alone because it's so incredible. And you know it, 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says that he, God, made Jesus who knew no sin. That is, Jesus was completely unfamiliar with sin experientially. He was impeccable. He was uh, what they say is non possipicari, not able to sin. He was completely free from the experience of sin. He couldn't sin. And God made Jesus who knew no sin to what? To be sin. The embodiment of of evil, so that Jesus on the cross became everything that God could not endure. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. There's the substitution. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of our union with Jesus, he takes our sin, dies for it on the cross, pays the wrath of God against it. And then God is free to give us his righteousness to our account. But the true agony of the cross was to bear our sin and simultaneously experience the unmitigated blast of God's eternal fury and hatred for sin. And Jesus took every last ounce of that vengeful fury, that indignation towards sin, and he bore it on his divine person. And that is difficult for us to understand, right? I mean, we're just humans. We're, we're not God. We're not infinite God. And we're acquainted with sin. But for Jesus, I don't know if we can understand how shocking that must have been for him. For Jesus. And he, he had lived forever. He, he's eternal. He's God. And from the timeless existence of God in eternity past, Jesus had only known, only known, sweet, holy, happy fellowship and communion with the first person of the Trinity or the Trinity itself. But at the cross, that eternally sweet and happy fellowship with, with his Father was severed completely. And it was replaced not just by God's absence, but by his indignation, his fury towards sin. And Jesus Christ felt so alone, so deserted, so judged, that from his abysmal grief he cried out what? My God, my God. And only Jesus called the Father my God. The Jews would say our God. He was saying, I have an intimate relationship with God. He's my Father. And so he literally cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he felt utterly Alone, utterly forsaken, utterly judged, and he had never, ever known that. Ever. As uh, most of you probably know, uh, Dr. James Dobson interviewed Ted Bundy, the notorious serial killer, uh, in de on death row. In the, I think the day before he finished the interviews, on the day before Ted Bundy was executed. And Dr. Dobson walked away, and I have no reason to question Dr. Dobson's assessment because I respect him, first of all, but he's a, he's a truthful, godly man. And Dr. Dobson walked away from those interviews with Ted Bundy, who murdered countless women, fully convinced that Ted Bundy had trusted Christ as Savior before his life was terminated in, on death row. That means... That Jesus' unpolluted body bore the dark, twisted sins of Ted Bundy on that cross. That he completely was accounted with the guilt of Ted Bundy's sin. That he suffered the shame and guilt for Ted Bundy and the eternal wrath of God for Ted Bundy's sin on that cross. To the point that Jesus became as Ted Bundy on the cross. And God treated Jesus as if he were Ted Bundy so that he might treat Ted Bundy as if he were 
Jesus Christ himself. Rumors persist and thinking persists. Articles persist that Jeffrey Dahmer also trusted Christ, another serial killer. He trusted Christ before his life was ended by a fellow inmate in jail. And we say, man, that, just imagine Ted Bundy and, and Jeffrey Dahmer. You know what? There are thousands like them. And worse. And let's make this a little bit more personal, guys. The, the guilt for the most awful, dreaded sins that we have ever committed. The shame for the sin that I have committed, that you have com committed. Those things, especially that we are ashamed to speak of to any man or woman, no matter how much they love us. Those sins were pinned on Jesus Christ. And it was that dreadful aspect of the cross, that inexplicable grief that drove Jesus to the brink of physical death before he actually went to the cross, right? In Mark 14.34 and Matthew 26.38, the Lord confessed to his men, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of what? Death. And he wasn't speaking hyperbolically there, metaphorically. That's why he experienced a true physical condition called hematidrosis, which is the effusion of blood through the pores. The blood vessels that feed the sweat glands under great distress, either physical or psychological, can burst, and then the blood seeks the path of least resistance with the sweat up the pore. And the victim literally sweats blood, as it were. The emotional stress was so great, so physically overpowering, that it pushed Jesus to the threshold of physical death. That's stress. You know, the prospect of becoming sin, of bearing sin, of bearing the wrath of God, of being separated from the Father, was so distressing to Jesus that Jesus pleaded with God three times that he might remove the cup, that he might forego the cross. Just imagine that. You know, the, 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 if you read the, the different accounts of the Gethsemane experience, uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, it, it, is, it is just wrenching. Jesus is crying out. He's sweating blood. He's on his face on the dirt. You know, I, I grew up, after we came here from Argentina, my family, I grew up in what is considered, I guess, a mega church in Long Beach, my, I saw my brothers here, the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. He grew up there with me. And um, we, it was a, a massive complex, just huge on, on probably four or five acres, all built out except for the parking lot. And uh, there was this room where kids practiced choir. It was a really cool little room. It was one of my favorite rooms. And there was a lectern, and there was a blackboard. They used chalk. <laughs> Eric would have loved that. I mean, it was, it was amazing. They used chalk. It's the stuff that gets in your lungs. It's really wonderful. <laughs> and there was a piano there. And I have a lot of sweet memories there, but there was this picture of Jesus that I loved. Totally inaccurate, but I loved it. <laughs> and it was Jesus at Gethsemane. And I always called it the Norwegian Jesus. 
because he had blonde hair, a little wavy. You probably know the picture, the, the painting that I'm talking about. And he had crystal blue eyes. And we don't, we don't know. The Lord may have had some of those traits. His great, 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 great grandfather, David, was a ginger, right? He was ruddy. And Leah, his great, 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 great grandmother to the power of four, one of the patriarchal wives, Leah, it says that she had weak eyes. That's another way of saying she probably had light green or blue eyes in, in a place where most people had very dark eyes. So maybe that was not the point. Yeah, he probably wasn't like surfed out Norwegian Jesus like that. <laughs> but what, what later bothered me was the fact that when you look at the picture, Jesus looked like 20 minutes before the, the, the painting was done, he just walked out of the shower. And he was so calm and collected and non-Middle Eastern. And he was down on bended knee and his hands folded over a rock with his you know, gaze looking upward, his you know, head slightly tilted. And I'm thinking to myself, that was probably painted by a white guy on, def on decaf who didn't read the text. Because the picture that we get from those, and I encourage you to read those this week, all the parallel accounts, because the point of those narratives is to tell us that Jesus, the God-man, begged, pleaded with the Father that the cup of divine wrath that he was about to take would be removed from him. And that he could forego the cross. That's how distressing the cross and terrifying the cross was to Jesus. But thankfully for us, guys, he was also praying with just as much fervor that God's will would be done, even if it meant the cup. And what's amazing, he, see, Jesus was under no delusion about his costly obedience. None. And once the father's reply came regarding the, the cup, which was what? Drink the cup. There's no other way, my son. Drink the cup. And there are people that I've heard say, well, you know, God could have saved us in so many ways. No, he couldn't. Jesus' prayer proves that. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. God says, drink the cup. Drink it to the dregs. And once Jesus received his answer, guys, once he knew that that was the only way to accomplish redemption, there was nothing, there was no one, no thing, no spirit, no person, no circumstance that could deter, deter him from that costly obedience. And he could have escaped if it were possible. How many times do you read, for example, in the Gospels that Jesus was being pressed by his enemies on every side. They're looking to throw him off a cliff or kill him or stone him. And it says he eluded their grasp. He evaded his enemies. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He went somewhere else. And you usually will find in those areas, at those times, a little phrase that says, for his hour had not yet come. What hour? This hour. Jesus could have avoided this group. He not only knew what was coming, he knew when they were coming. And what did Jesus do? Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, 
and he went forth. What did Jesus do? He went forth. He could have been delivered by the power of, his, of human beings. I think his disciples were ready to fight. As they began their trip to that final Passover in Jerusalem, they, they picked up that there was something ominous going on. And Thomas in John eleven sixteen says, let us go with him that we may die with him. They were ready to fight to the death. Peter was ready to fight, right? He lopped off that dude's ear, Malchus. And Jesus healed him. And the reason he got his ears was one of two things. Either Malchus ducked or Peter was just a lousy shot, right? Peter was ready to fight, but he had him put away that sword. What did Jesus do? He went forth. He said, the cup which the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? He could have been delivered by angels. He had just been ministered to by angels. And angels are pretty amazing creatures, right? They're very scary, if nothing. I mean, if an angel appeared right here, right now, please I'll hold them back, Lord. <laughs> They're well-intentioned, but they scare everybody to death. The Apostle John in his 90s, he's a, the last elder statesman of, of, of the Apostles alive. And he sees this vision. He goes to heaven. And in chapter 19 and chapter 22 of, of the book of Revelation, he sees this angel. And he's so overwhelmed by his glory and his power and his brilliance and his beauty that he literally, it says, he fell down to worship him. John. And both angels said, don't do that. We hate it when that happens. <laughs> Worship God only. Angels are pretty awesome. You know, it, it, God sent one angel to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. One angel. Remember when David was uh, disciplined by the Lord because he numbered his army and he put his trust in, in his, his ability to deliver himself and his horses and all that, his soldiers, his army. And God said, I'm going to judge that so that you understand to be humble before me because you're dependent on me, not on your army. And God sent one angel, sent one angel, and that angel killed 70,000 of his men. And he was about to destroy the city of Jerusalem as a whole, and God stayed his hand because David had repented. One angel can kill 70,000 people and wipe out an entire citadel. One angel killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's, the Assyrian's army, when he came up against King Hezekiah. One angel. In Matthew's account of the Malchus incident, Jesus said to Peter, Don't you realize that I could appeal to my father and he would put at my disposal, Jesus said, more than 12 legions of angels? How many is a legion? 6,000. Don't you realize, Peter, that I could have tens of thousands of these awesome beings here to deliver me? But what did Jesus do? He went forth. He went forth. He certainly could have been rescued by his own divine power when that throng of thugs came to arrest him, probably six to seven hundred strong. It was a cohort, six hundred, usually two to a thousand, but six hundred were kept traditionally in Jerusalem. 
And then there were the temple priests and the temple police. They came to arrest Jesus, and when they asked, you know, when Jesus asked them, whom do you seek, what did he, they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and what did he say? I am he, right? The he, if you've got the New American Standard, is in italics in your Bible. That's because it's supplied. It isn't there in the Greek. In the Greek, it simply says, I am. Ego eimi. Ego eimi is the Greek equivalent of the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And when he said, I am, when he pronounced his divine name, what happened? They stepped back and literally tumbled over. Why? Because that was his divine power. He could have delivered himself, but what did Jesus do? He went forth. No, guys, even though Jesus understood the horror that awaited him on the cross, he chose a costly obedience. Why? Because that's how much he loves you. That's how much God loves you. Jesus chose a costly obedience because that's what his love for you demanded. Redemptive love then is a costly obedience. It was born out of Christ's costly obedience. Secondly, and not as long as, we won't take as long as with the first point, but it's also an incredibly selfless love. Turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, for a moment. And you get a glimpse of the selfless love of Christ as he made his way to the cross, guys, and as he actually hung there. Now, we'll look at this one incident in a minute, but we just saw how intense the Lord's emotions were as he anticipated the cross, right? He was grieved to the point of death. And it's hard to imagine then his agony when he was actually enveloped by the horrors of the cross. But we can assume, logically, that the shadow, the anticipation of the cross was not as great as the actual experience of the cross, right? The realities of Calvary were far heavier than the anticipation of Calvary. If Christ was grieved with the thought of bearing our sin, uh, how much more was his soul tormented when, we, when he actually bore our sin on the cross and was separated from the Father? His heart was in excruciating anguish. Only infinite God could experience what infinite God was doing to him. And yet as he suffered, and this is the, the point that I want to make, as Jesus suffered this incredible anguish on the cross, time after time after time, Jesus selflessly reached out to those around him, and he warned, he prayed, he comforted, he restored, he encouraged, he saved, he cared for those he encountered on his painful mission. It's just astounding to me, guys, that the Lord Jesus, given the agony of his soul and the torments of his flesh, continually reaches out to others. You know, I get a cold... Leave me alone. I don't like people. I, I don't suffer pain well. I, I don't suffer well. I hate to say it. I'm very self-focused when I get sick. Jesus is constantly looking out for others in the midst of grief that we could never even imagine. And we can see his selfless love, especially in the love and grace and mercy that he extends to a helpless sinner on the cross. And the key operative word there is helpless. We're talking about the thief on the cross that repented. 
Remember him? And this is, uh, this is someone we need to identify with, guys, because he shows us a picture of what is true, and that is this, that we, like him, bring nothing to the cross except brokenness, except a great debt that we cannot pay back. This thief could literally offer Christ nothing. He couldn't even promise reform. You know, once I get off this cross, I'm, I'm going to start a nonprofit foundation to feed hungry children. He couldn't do that. He couldn't do what Zacchaeus, the tax collector, did. Remember, Jesus went to his house to eat, and Zacchaeus was so moved by Jesus that he embraced him. He embraced him as master, and he said, Master, I am going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And if I have wronged anybody, I will repay them fourfold. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. The thief couldn't offer anything. Nothing. Look at the text, beginning with verse 38 of Luke 23. Now, there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. They got one thing right there. And one of the criminals who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not fear God, since you are, are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving what, is, what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, this, these are amazing words, Jesus Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And we read that account in Luke and we say, man, what amazing penitence. What a humble and, and broken heart. What contrition. What words of faith. And you're right. But you know what? Those words weren't there at the beginning of this ordeal. Because Matthew and Mark make it very clear that at the beginning of this whole deal, both thieves were literally casting the same insults as the sneering crowd, as the cynical Romans, as the bitter leadership. They were casting the same insults on the wounded heart of Jesus Christ. And then we read in Luke and we have this, this transformation. How did that happen? Well, we're not given a whole lot of information, but something happened. There was a tremendous transformation there, right? And I think if we just kind of look at this and, and, and just extend the, our thoughts a little bit here, I, I think there could have been a last-ditch glimmer of hope in this darkened thief's heart that somehow Jesus could get him out of a fix at the beginning. The same kind of frustrated, last-ditch glimmer of hope that we find in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? You know, aren't you powerful? Then save yourself and us. And it's evident that this thief at some point had heard Jesus teach or heard about his teaching because he knew about his kingdom and his coming. It's also very likely because Jesus tended to gather the fringes, you know, the subculture, if you will, on society, and this guy was definitely on the fringes. He was a thug. He was a, a, probably a robber. He had probably, could have very possibly, seen Jesus heal 
many people. He could have seen some works of power. Jesus performed those miracles before thousands. I just read in Matthew where he finished the feeding of the 4,000 and he reminds the disciples about the feeding of the 5,000 and how God provides. The 5,000 and 4,000 were just the count of the men. Along with the women and the children, you're talking about crowds of anywhere upwards of 20 to 25,000 or more. Jesus performed miracles before tens of thousands of people. Perhaps this thief was one of them. We don't know, but we know this. He certainly heard about him. In fact, it was the reports of the miracles that pushed the hands, forced the hands of the leadership to kill Jesus because they said, if we don't stop this guy, the whole world is going to follow after him. And Jesus had just done two eye-popping miracles, pardon the pun there, but he healed a couple of blind men coming out of Jericho. And then he gets to Bethany on his way to the cross, essentially, and he gets to Bethany and he does what? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And that spread like wildfire. These guys had to have heard of some of Christ's miracles, and so they assumed that this Jesus had some kind of power to deliver them from this terrible foxhole they found themselves in. But then as the crucifixion just ground on, because it grinds, it's a slow death. As the crucifixion ground on, no deliverance came. And it was apparent to both these, these criminals that Jesus somehow lacked the power to deliver. Either he had lost power, or he didn't have as much power as he, they thought he did, or maybe he was just a great magician, a, a, a sleight of hand guy, a, somebody who was a clever illusionist. Because they were being delivered. He wasn't delivering himself. And so this one thief's hope turned into derisive anger as the pain and torture of death and crucifixion just ground on and, and sharpened his frustration. And so that's why in both Matthew and Mark, I believe, we find the, both criminals berating the anguished soul of the Lord Jesus. But then something began to happen. As this thief watched Jesus die and, and take all that verbal abuse that he was taking from all the crowds with grace and dignity, just as he had received all his physical blows with such grace and dignity, just as he was bearing the, the shame of the cross with such grace and dignity, as he watched Jesus die, a metamorphosis began to take place. Because Jesus, you see, didn't return any of their insults, any of their derisive anger. No one could engage this man's inner anger. And Jesus was in control in an absolutely out-of-control situation. In fact, the only thing that this thief heard from Jesus were prayers. Particularly a prayer uttered on behalf of his tormentors that God would have mercy on them. In, in I think it's verse 34 of Luke 23 right there. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Do you realize that the word forgive is in the imperative mood? What does that mean? That means it's a command. God, 
Jesus is separated, cut off from God the Father, but he's imploring as hard as he can before God to please, God, have mercy on these people. That's what the thief heard. And something began to change. This was no mere man. He was in, in control, and he had never seen power like that. Let's face it, any goon could inflame a crowd, right, with rhetoric. Jesus Christ remained in control, kind and compassionate, considerate and merciful throughout it all. And so he had never seen grace like that. And there was only one other conclusion. And by the way, you say, did God hear the prayer of Jesus for mercy upon the rejecting generation? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Many of them went away beating their breasts. That was an ancient sign of mourning. And not only that, these people left after the Feast of Booths and the Passover. They left, but they came back for Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? God blew the doors open on salvation. He started his church. And literally thousands upon thousands of Jews who had seen Christ crucified believed in him. God in Jesus, Jesus had real power. And so there was only one conclusion left for this, this thief, this former thief. And he realized that hanging next to him was the man that the sentence proclaimed to be there, and that was the king of the Jews. And you say, well, how could he possibly come to that conclusion when all the evidence is contradictory? You want to know why? Listen, any cursory student of the Bible would be able to tell you that Israel had killed the wrong man before. Remember the, the words of Stephen as he was being stoned by his accusers? And he said to them, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Tell them, name me one. And you killed those who came to announce the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have become. Israel had killed the wrong man before. And here, hanging next to him was the king. And he was transformed. You can see it in his attitude. From one of escapism to uh, uh, completely being absorbed with his own sin. And the light must have gone on while he hung there. And as he contemplated Jesus in his own wasted life, and he realized that hanging next to him was the Messiah who was called Jesus Yeshua. What does that mean? God's salvation. He was a savior. And so in a very simple but profound moment, he must have just given his life to the saving Messiah. And if he was the anointed of God, the king of Israel, then he would not be thwarted. He not only understood that, he believed that. That's why he requested to be remembered for good on that last day, that future day of his coming kingdom. And then we have his amazingly humble words ringing out in stark contrast to his former attitude. Verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And guys, in the most bitter moment of life, as he was swallowing the, the bitter pill of a sin-wrecked, wasted life, as he hung on an executioner's cross, he heard the sweetest words he had ever heard. Verse 43. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, 
Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus said, you wanted a promise for some future day? Okay, fine, but you need a promise for today. You need a promise for today. He said, in essence, I'm about to storm the gates of heaven to the praise of God and his holy angels, and you get to be with me. You get to be with me. This guy found life on an executioner's cross, guys. He woke up that day going <coughs> straight to hell. He woke up a condemned criminal who was going to be executed. And he had a full stamped pass straight to hell. He woke up by the side of Jesus in the presence of God the Father in the midst of the holy heavenly host. Why? Because Jesus saved, he comforted the very one who had cursed him and mocked him. In his selfless love, he did that. Guys, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God, love us. Do you understand that? Do you embrace that? Do you believe that? Do you let that saturate your mind and cleanse your soul? God loves you. Jesus loves you. And this is a perfect way with the Lord's table to basically end this time together of study around the word. This is a table that reminds us of Christ's death. This represents the broken body of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed for the remission, the propitiation of our sins. And this is a table of of joy that God invites his people to, where we are invited by God to enjoy his feast, there now being no enmity between us because God has removed it through the cross of Christ. But enjoy the feast that God has provided, the feast of forgiveness and redemption in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of the work of Jesus, there is no enmity between you and us. There's only peace, grace, mercy, love. Oh God, we, we are so thankful. And we pray that you would encourage us through this time of fellowship with each other and with you through the elements of the broken body and blood of Christ that are symbolized in, these, um, in the bread and the juice. We love you and thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.